KT, have you noticed that interest rates long-term are starting to go down little by little? Yeah, what are we going to do about it? I tell you what I think everybody should do about it. You should go to myalliant.com and take advantage of the one-year to 17-month certificate of deposit. They're currently paying 5.15% or 5.20% for amounts of $75,000 or more. Tell them one more time, KT, where they should go. Go to myalliant.com today. Now you know. Susie Orman here, and you are listening to the Women in Money podcast. Now, this is not your ordinary money podcast, for there is nothing that I do that is ordinary. So if you want to be the powerful woman that you were born to be in every aspect of your life, then you have come to the right place. We are strong. Ask Susie anything today. It is Thursday. And if you want to send in an email, by the way, you can do so to podcast at gmail.com. You never know when I'll pick it and talk about it on the air or email you back directly. Or you can call in and actually leave a question at 1-877-545-7893. 7893, spell Susie, S-U-Z-E. Also, please remember to go to Apple Podcast and give us a star rating or whatever your review may happen to be. The more reviews and the more things that we have, the more people know about us. I'm doing something different today. Today, rather than you're asking questions and I'm answering them, I have a friend whose name is Tim Sinclair. Yes, I know. He's a man. He's a great man. And I think it's important to be able to interact with men as well on this podcast. And Tim is actually the CEO of a company that allows all of you, without investing a whole lot of money at all, to be able to create a podcast. The name of the company is Ringer, R-I-N-G-R, and that's actually how I met Tim. So Tim has also created a podcast where he is the host called Also Humans. And what that means is that people who have really made it, what is their human side? You know, besides this formal, professional, successful side that all of you see, what is it about our human side? So Tim, right now, you're going to hear this, interviewed me, and I really liked how it turned out. So I thought, why not share it with all of you? Obviously, his podcast can be heard on Stitcher or on iTunes. I think you'll probably enjoy it. Just another podcast to add to the collection of many that I'm sure you already have. So sit back, get ready, and let's learn about Susie Orman's human side. Do you think I have one? Hmm. People are strong and smart. I have a dream today. 
bold and beautiful, courageous and creative. We pen books and pose for magazines. We sing songs and start businesses. We win championships and write dissertations. But we are also humans. We're flawed. We're imperfect. We doubt. We falter. And we fail. And ironically, our struggles are more powerful than our successes. These are our stories. Well, Susie Orman is an author and speaker and money guru and radio and TV personality, Emmy winner. The list is very, very long. Um, but I think you know you've made it when Saturday Night Live does a parody of you. <laughs> <laughs> and does that a means... parody me of a few times, a few right. times, not just once. I think it was four or five times. That's amazing. What was it like <laughs> seeing yourself being portrayed sort of uh, spoofed on television? I'll tell you something you probably don't know about me, but in college, I went to the University of Illinois. That I know you know. But my roommate was a woman by the name of Judy Jacklin, who had a boyfriend by the name of John Belushi. <laughs> and and for those of you who don't know, John was one of the original stars of Saturday Night Live. And because Judy and I and another woman by the name of Carol Morgan, we didn't have money. They allowed us to live in a little one-bedroom apartment on Springfield off of campus. All right. And I'll never forget our rent was $120 a month for three of us, one bedroom. And with Judy came John. <laughs> and so for the next four years of college, my roommate was John Belushi. My goodness. And so obviously I had quite the connection to Saturday Night Live. And the very first time I saw it, I had no idea that I was even going to be on it. I'm sitting there because I was always, I always watched. I went, that's my theme music. Oh my God, are they going <laughs> to do a parody on me? The very next time... I had been at the Time 100 event because I had just been um, awarded one of the, you know, Time 100, which is the 100 most influential people in the world. And the entertainer that evening happened to be Kristen Wiig. And, Kristen, <laughs> and she's the one who did your parody, right? Right. So to make a very long story short, she was scared to death to see me because she thought that I would be upset with her. I told her it was the greatest honor of my life. And then Lauren Michael, who is the creator of Saturday Night Live, gave me and KT seats for the next Saturday because they were going to do it again. <laughs> so now I'm in the audience watching Kristen do me when everybody in the audience is watching me watch Kristen. Oh, so my goodness. It, it was it was the one of the biggest honors of my life, to tell you the truth. Uh, watching, uh, you know, doing a parody, I'm sure, is difficult for the performer just in general to get all the mannerisms and things right. But to do it in front of the actual person, I, I would imagine, has got to be terrifying. <laughs> she, she was, she didn't know that I was going to be there, and then somehow the word got out that I was in the audience. And you can tell that she was nervous, <laughs> but it's all right. Well, besides that honor, what would you say? Obviously, it would take me a half an hour to read through all of your accolades and the things you've done and accomplished over the years. But w what would you say, looking back, is your biggest 
whether it's honor or the thing you're most proud of doing over the last number of years? You know, I've had nine New York Times bestsellers. I have over 30 million copies in various forms of my books in print. Um, and one would think that would be my greatest honor. It's a big deal. A big deal. One would think that my two Emmy Awards, which really were part of my two biggest honors ever, um, because, you know, I was a finance person. Emmy Awards are given for performances. Right. So that was it. You would think that twice being named to the Time 100 or once to the Forbes 100 Most Powerful Women and everything. But out of everything in my career that I've ever done, and whether it's in my career or outside of my career that I'm most proud of is catching a 60-pound Wahoo. And I'm not kidding. <laughs> On my, I am not joking with you. You're a, you're a water girl, aren't you? Yes. But out of everything that I've accomplished in my life, the absolute hardest thing, and, and I don't even know how to explain this, is having mastered fishing and now really am revered as a master fisherwoman, and people now ask me about fishing. That's probably the greatest honor that's ever been bestowed upon me, really. I would I would have said there's not much you could have said that would have surprised me in, in an answer to that question, but you surprised me. <laughs> yeah. Well, catching a wahoo is one of the hardest fish to catch bar none. And um, to even be able to catch one and get it in the boat is an amazing feat. And now I've done it over a hundred times. That's amazing. Well, you are accomplished in, in many ways, but I, <laughs> I know it, it hasn't always been that way for you. Uh, honestly, until I started doing a little research on your story, um, I, I didn't necessarily expect that you sort of had the silver spoon <laughs> in your mouth growing up, um, but I, I kind of expected it was a fairly normal middle class, upper middle class kind of uh, life for you, but that that wasn't the case, huh? No, it was... You know, it started out that way for my parents, truthfully. The south side of Chicago, years and years ago, was a very affluent Jewish neighborhood. And little by little, it started to transform. And as soon as African Americans moved in, all the white people moved out. However, my father had gotten into financial trouble, and he literally lost all of his money. So there we were in the south side of Chicago, which is where we stayed until I graduated um, high school there. And so that happened when my father, when I, to my father, when I was about five or six or seven years of age. And at that point then, my mother had to go back to work. She became a secretary, sold Avon on the side. My father was constantly... Uh, you know, one tragedy after another, being caught in a fire, getting third-degree burns all over his body, almost all, then getting emphysema. So it was up to all of us to make it on our own, putting ourselves through college and through everything. And my dream job, honestly, I really thought was simply if I could just be a waitress, because I was a really good waitress. That's how I got through, you know, you know, high school and put myself through college and all of that, that if I could just be a waitress, I would be happy. And I actually was, Tim. I was a waitress till I was almost 30 years of age, 
from the age of 23 to 30, making $400 a month in Berkeley, California. And, you know, I just had a dream. I had a dream that maybe one day I could open my own restaurant. Mm -hmm. But my parents had no money. They still, you know, were struggling month to month. And by a miracle, truthfully, all the people I had been waiting on for all those years gathered forces and gave me $50,000 to open up my own restaurant. Well, that says a lot about uh, your personality just as uh, as a waitress, right? And how good you were there. Uh, and I want to get to that. But at the risk of another Saturday Night Live reference, uh, tell me about the van down by the river. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't down by the river, but it was a van, yes? Yes. So when I moved from Illinois, the University of Illinois, Champaign, I only had $300 to my name. My brother gave me $1,500 to buy a Ford Econoline van, a used one, um, that I transformed into I could sleep in the back. I got a little portable toilet that didn't flush, obviously, that you had to empty, but still, you know, you could sit on it. And, <laughs> and I head out and I end up living on the streets in that van for three months until I landed that dream job of mine as a waitress at the Buttercup Bakery. And I really loved that van and I loved living in there. And then after that, and I did get a job as a waitress, then I was able, you know, to get my own little apartment and share it with a lot of people. Now, $50,000 from the people you served at a little bakery in California, um, that's got to be kind of kind of a mountaintop for you, I would assume, right? You've, you've had all these dreams. You're making 400 bucks a month. It'd take you, whatever, 15 years to make that kind of money, um, making what you were making. Uh, but the, the story sort of uh, fell off a cliff not too long after that. Yeah, so what happened was when I was given this money and checks and everything, Fred Hasbrook was the name of the gentleman who really we all owe my success to, because he was the one who gathered all that money for me. I said to him, Fred, are these checks going to bounce like all mine do? <laughs> and he told me to take the money down to Merrill Lynch and put it in a money market fund. I didn't know what a Merrill Lynch was, and I didn't know what a money market fund was. He told me I went down to the Oakland office of Merrill Lynch, was greeter, greeted by the broker of the day, which is the financial advisor who literally greets every new person that walks in to, again, make a long story short. He knew what the money was for. He knew that I had no money. He knew I wanted to open up my own restaurant. And he told me to sign these papers, you know, that were just blank. And I did, because what did I know? And then what happened after that was I left, he filled out the paperwork to make it look like I was a very sophisticated investor mm -hmm. and started to play the options market with it. And then within three months, all $50,000 was lost. <laughs> that um, transition from the highest of highs to what had to be the lowest of lows, I mean, what are yeah. you thinking at this point? Are you more embarrassed? Are you scared? Are you sad? I'm angry. And I'm like, all right, I can be a broker because they just make you broker. But <laughs> but really, in those three months that he was playing the options market, I was getting interested. I was watching um, 
you know, all the TV shows that were on at the time, Wall Street Week was on the time with Louis Rukeyser, Barron's would come out that weekend, and I would start to learn about what was happening. And in those three months, I figured out, and I knew that we were going to lose the money, but I figured out how the markets worked. And I knew more about it than Randy the broker. So I went in, interviewed for a job. They had to hire me to fill their women's quota. I was told by the manager, women belong barefoot and pregnant, and he would hire me, but he would fire me in six months. He told me he would pay me $1,500 a month. I figured that's $9,000. That's two years at the Buttercup. I could always go back there. So again, now I start my career as a stockbroker. And and how do you transition from that? And I know it's probably many, many years in the making from, from being a, a stockbroker who frankly didn't know what she was doing when she first started uh, to this um, expert on TV with Oprah and on the Today Show <laughs> and everything else you've you've been on. I mean, that's uh, that's a pretty steep hill to climb. So what happened there after all the stuff that I went through, I ended up suing Merrill Lynch to get the money back because I sued them. He could never fire me. By the time the suit came to court, I was already one of their top producing brokers. I then leave Merrill Lynch to go to um, Prudential Bayesian. I became a vice president of an investments for them and in 87 started my own firm. In 1994, I decided, oh, I should write a book that I could impress all my clients with. <laughs> and I thought, I know, I'll call it keeping your gold in the golden years because I specialized in retirement planning. And I wrote this book and and no publisher wanted it at all, except for one woman by the name of Esther Margolis of New Market Press, who said, oh, this looks interesting. Why don't you stop in and see me? I came in. I told her my story. This is in New York now. And she said, I'll buy it for $10,000. Hmm. And I'm like, you're going to pay me $10,000 to write a book? Right. And all I wanted was books to give my clients. And I said, can I have as many books as I want? She said, uh-huh. I said, deal. Somehow that book, she changed the title to You've Earned It, Don't Lose It, Got On QVC, was the first book to break the QVC barrier. Because if you think about it, you can't sell a book on, t on TV unless it's a cookbook because you can't demonstrate it. Right. I put my phone number in that book. And I told everybody, if you call, if you need advice and you call, I'll call you back. And that book was selling now hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies. Not wow. everybody obviously called. And then what happened was that Avon had a company called Avon Life Design. And the woman who was teaching a course for them was the name of Nell something. I can't even remember her name, but she was Oprah's finance woman. She was always on Oprah. And she was supposed to teach a course for Avon. But Oprah's producers called her and asked her to be on the Oprah show the day she was to teach that course. So she, of course, said, forget the course. I'm going on Oprah. 
Now, Gail Blanke, who ran Avon Life Design, which was to teach women how to be healthy, wealthy, and wise, had 15 women coming that had paid $500 each to take this, a course. And she didn't know what to do. And, and she was friends with Esther Margolis, and Esther had sent her a book. And so she called Esther and said, do you think Susie Orman can teach a course? Esther called me. I flew out that night on the red eye, and I created a course called The Nine Steps to Financial Freedom. Wow. And I kept the copyright for it. I put a little copy sign on it. And I started to teach that course for Avon, and people were raving about it. Then what happened was the lawyer for Avon said, Susie, you know, this would be an incredible book. You need a book agent. And I'm like, well, what do I need a book agent for? I got a $10,000 advance. We've sold almost 600,000 copies of that book already because I thought that the way you made money as an author is through a royalty. Mm. She said, Susie, somebody will pay you $100,000, $400,000, something like that for your next book. She introduced me to Binky Urban, Amanda Urban, who was a serious big-time agent who thought she would do me a favor by seeing me. I didn't want to go. But I went, all right. And I go to see Binky. Binky turns around and says, kid, those eyes of yours will make us millions of dollars, but you got to lose 30 pounds. <laughs> and I thought, you know, like, okay. So I come back at her and I go, what woman calls herself Binky? And she said to me, when you are as powerful as I am, you can call yourself anything you damn want. I thought, this is the woman for me. <laughs> we signed a contract. She then sent me out to see all the publishers that originally turned me down. And before you knew it, a bidding war started. And the book was up to $800,000. That had to be a fun little tour right. going back to yeah. those places that uh, rejected you back in the day. <laughs> and... And that book was The Nine Steps to Financial Freedom. And that book went on to be Random House's number one book at the time. So everything hit right. And the way that I got on to, op to the Oprah Winfrey show is that, which is funny because Neil Godfrey, that was her name, right? Neil was the Oprah woman, you know, finance mm -hmm. person. But she broke her word. It's a funny thing, Tim. She broke her word to Avon to do Oprah. And then here I am doing Avon that leads me to Oprah. Hmm. And the reason that Oprah came to me, the producers, Katie Davis, is that the subtitle of Nine Steps to Financial Freedom was Practical and Spiritual Steps So You Can Stop Worrying. There was a woman on there that was going through a divorce, a very high powered and, and, you know, big d divorce. And so they wanted me to come on to talk about the spiritual side of divorce. I told Katie Davis, there's no such thing as a spiritual side of divorce. You, you know, I'm not a divorce specialist. Oprah deserves something better than me. And it took Katie one month to convince me to come on the Oprah Winfrey show. And as soon as Oprah saw me, it was like this connection. We sat down. She had one minute to interview me because they had gone over 
And she looked at me. She said, so, all right, Susie Orman, tell me the key to life. And I said to her, when you can be as happy in your sadness as you are in your happiness, then you know the key to life. And she said, thank you very much, everybody. We'll see you, you know, tomorrow. <laughs> and then she says, and we're going to be doing an hour special on this woman. And with that, she walks off. Wow. <laughs> and that's how it all started. Doing 10 or 12 words sort of changed the trajectory of your career, huh? Totally. Totally. Wow. I need to figure out what those 10 or 12 words are and uh, see what I can work out myself. Uh, um, so uh, obviously, um, everybody knows the successful Susie Orman, and we've heard some of, of the, the non-successful parts. Um, what would you say even today, um, just about you, is, is the thing you wish you didn't have to deal with? You know, for some, it might be uh, anger or sadness or, uh, I mean, there, it could be any number of things. But is, is there something now that you still wrestle with that you go, man, despite all of the things I've achieved, I really wish this wasn't something I, I battled? Yeah, I wish I didn't have to battle the preconceived notions of who I am and the advice that I give. Hmm. You know, so many people say, oh, it's such simplistic advice. Get out of debt, six-month emergency fund, eight-month emergency fund. Do this, do that. Anybody can do that. And it's almost as if when you haven't made it, Everybody wants you to make it until you've made it. And then after you've made it, everybody wants, not everybody, but a lot of people don't want you to make it anymore. And it's, it's as if my success determines that they're going to fail, which isn't true. So there's always this yep, yep, yapping about everything. And and I wish that wasn't true. I, I really wish that everybody was more supportive of everybody because there's room, there's a lot of room for a lot of people to give advice. But it's a very, it's a very competitive world. And I really wish it was a nicer place out there, but it's not. You know, when, and I just went through this, I, I can't, couldn't even believe that I was seeing this again. But in 1998, The Nine Steps to Financial Freedom was the number one selling book of all books, that nonfiction hardback books, of all nonfiction hardback books in the entire United States. It sold equivalent to Stephen King's books on the fiction side. Hmm. And do you think when Business Week magazine listed their top 10 books, business books, there was one book by a woman on that list. There was not. There is not hmm. at that time. And I'm looking at this. That book, that book spent a year at number one on the New York Times bestseller list, on the USA Today list. And it was only knocked off the New York Times list down to number two because my second, my book, Courage to be Rich, my third book actually, knocked it down. So <laughs> I had the number one and number two hardback nonfiction book on the New York Times list at once. I don't know if another author has ever done that. And they right. were finance books, all right? But the men wouldn't acknowledge it. 
What's the most hurt you would say you've been by either a slight like that or a comment someone's made? I mean, I talk to a, a lot of people, not nearly as many people as you've talked to in your career. And I still remember from I was doing radio in Huntsville, Alabama, and somebody sent me an, an email after I got back from a week of vacation. And it said, the best week of my life was the week you were gone. And <laughs> and this was probably 15 years ago. And I still yeah. remember it. Um, I would imagine, you know, my hate mail pales in comparison to yours, not because uh, people like me any better, but because you talk to so many more people. Yeah. Um, which which of those things really get to you or are you able to let them bounce off now? Well, now here, you know, Barbara Walters gave me fabulous advice years and years ago. And she said, don't read the good news and don't read the bad news. Hmm. And I have a saying that grace is above praise and blame. So I don't read the comments that people write. I don't read my anything on Twitter, on Facebook. I haven't been on those things for years now. And there's postings there. And once in a while, I'll do something. But I never read what anybody else writes. Maybe I'll write something, but I don't care what people say anymore. I don't read the articles. I don't read the good articles. I don't read the bad articles. I don't care. I have another saying, let them, you know, let them think because they're going to think anyway. Because in life, the only thing that matters is that I know what I've done. I know why I do it. And I don't have to answer to anybody. And that is the most powerful stance you can take. Would you say you've used that um, motto or creed in other areas of life too, not just um, in business, but in terms of how you spend your money or who you spend your time with or how you treat your family, you know, all those kinds of things. I think when it comes to business decisions, it makes a lot of sense, but I would assume maybe that's born out of uh, some some things on, on the personal side as well. Yeah. For me, I don't divide my life from business to personal. I just have a life. And I make sure that my life is lived under the same laws of money and lessons of life and laws of life, which will give you lessons of money. Um, they're all the same. So everything I do in business is identical to what I do in my personal life. So when you meet me in person or you meet me on a stage, it's identical. There is no difference. And that makes it really easy, so easy, because it's my life. And at this stage in my life, you know, I'm about to be 68. And as you approach 70, it's really different than approaching 60 and 50 and 40. And I'm sure 80 will be far different than 70 mm -hmm. and 90 will be far different than 80. Because you really start to get that you are now entering the last phase of your life. The last quarter of your life is coming up here. What are you going to do? How are you going to feel? What's, what's going to go on when all of a sudden you're not on a stage getting standing ovations? <clears throat> you're not on television. You're not writing New York Times bestsellers. You're not having your podcast, which by the way, my podcast is Women and Money. You should all 
listen to it. Absolutely fabulous. But then what? Then who are you? So you better know who you are in life, not just in business, but in life. I don't want to be morbid about it by any means, but what would you say you want to be remembered as by friends or family or fans? What is that lasting, um, even just when you're out of the spotlight, not necessarily not on the planet anymore, but how is how is it that you want people to think of you and remember you? That's a good question because I tend not to try to think that way because I don't want things like that to matter to me. You know, it's 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 I want to know how I want to remember myself. I want to know how I feel when it's all over. But I would, if if I had to answer that question, I would want people to say, wow, because I listened to her. I now have money. I own my house outright. I don't have debt. And I'm happy. Well, be, before I let you go, uh, I want you to just talk to the person who, may, maybe not literally in a van down by the river, but uh, certainly on the early part of their journey when it comes to their career and their finances. And um, and maybe I find myself in this boat a little more than I'd like to admit <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, but the, the task is daunting. It feels so big when you're, you know, in your case, you didn't have a place to live. You were in an Econoline van working as a waitress for $400 a month. But uh, to someone who's there today and is overwhelmed with the possibility of ever doing something with themselves, who's hurting right now, sad, frustrated, depressed, you say what? I say, stop trying to be bigger than who you are. I say, Just try to be who you are and follow everything that you want to do one little step at a time. I never, ever, ever could have planned to be Susie Orman that you know now. Remember, I was so happy being a waitress. I just wanted to take a little step of owning my own restaurant. And that led to, okay, now I'm a financial advisor. And that led eventually to me owning my own firm. And that led to me just wanting to impress my clients by giving them a book, which led me to writing a book, which led me to, you know, to, to, to the next step, which was Avon. Because Esther introduced me to Avon, which introduced me to Oprah, which introduced me to the world, which, and then the steps just go on from there. So don't climb the mountain, just climb a little hill and don't let anybody sidetrack you. My biggest mistakes in life is as I was going down this path, somebody else would come along and they would say, hey, Susie, I have this great idea. Let's do this and da 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 da. Let's sell water filters. Let's make money. Let's do this. And I'd go off the path and then I would eventually lose money and come back to the path. Hmm. Put blinders on. And the greatest advice that I could give you is to have faith in who you are, to keep good company. If anybody around you says, you can't do that, that doesn't make sense, that's not good company. If somebody around you is saying, come on, let's go out to eat, let's go here, let's go there, and you know you don't have the money, that's not good company. So keep good company. The other thing that I'll never forget when I was a waitress at the Buttercup Bakery, is two young boys used to come in 
And I used to wait on them. And their names were Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs. <laughs> and at the time, they had a 1-800 dial-a-joke. Steve Wozniak did. Right. And that's what he was doing is they were working on this funny little thing in their garage. Right. Known eventually as Apple Computer and their mother. And they were so upset, their parents, that they were wasting their time on this. Hmm. If you have belief in who you are and you just take little tiny steps and you keep walking in the right direction, oh, you will get to where you are meant to be, but you have to keep walking. My great, I have two great slogans that get me through. One of them is, the dogs keep barking as the elephant keeps walking. Hmm. Every time I have people yep, yep, yep at my feet, whether it's a new, I don't care who it is, I just keep walking. I don't let them distract me. And the other is, be a warrior and don't turn your back on the battlefield. There are tests that are going to come up. There are things that are going to get in your way. There are things that are going to happen, losing $50,000 that could stop you right in your track. Or you can say, I can do that. I'm going to do that. Nothing's going to stop me. I'm going to go for it. I can achieve that. And if you just keep doing it, you will. Well, you have been the epitome of good company today, Susie. I um, I appreciate all your. I could I could sit here for a couple of hours and just soak in the advice and the encouragement and uh, and all those things. It's been uh, it's been great. And um, thank you for sharing your story and being uh, very human today. And as I know you always try to be, it's it's been my pleasure. Thank you, Tim. If you happen to know a remarkable person with a story worth sharing, I hope you'll share their information with us through our website at alsohumans.com. You can also check us out on Twitter and on Instagram. The handle for each is at alsohumans. I'm Tim Sinclair. We'll talk to you next time on the Also Humans podcast. Once again, that interview was by Tim Sinclair podcast, Also Humans. You can find it on Stitcher or iTunes. All right, everybody, remember the goal of the Women in Money podcast is for you to be strong, smart, and secure women. Are you becoming that? I hope so. Are you already that? I hope so. Meet you back here on Sunday. Till then, remember, there's only one thing that matters when it really comes to your money, and it's this. People first, then money, then things. Now you stay safe. Bye-bye. We are strong. We are wise. We will not apologize. We are here. We will thrive. Together we'll survive. We're the little And everything it takes. We are strong. We are wise. And together. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman is acting as a certified financial planner, advisor, a certified financial analyst, an economist, CPA, accountant, or lawyer. 
Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman make any recommendations as to any specific securities or investments. All content contained in this podcast is for informational and general purposes only and does not constitute financial accounting or legal advice. You should consult your own tax, legal, and financial advisors regarding your particular situation. Neither Susie Orman Media nor Susie Orman accepts any responsibility for any losses which may arise from accessing or reliance on information in this podcast. And to the fullest extent permitted by law, we exclude all liability for loss, damages, direct or indirect, arising from the use of this information. The must-have documents discussed in this podcast are legal documents created by a lawyer and distributed by Hay House.